Welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough. John Lennon once said, a dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. Join me as we connect dreams to reality by chatting with innovators from around Washington, DC. Our show is proudly sponsored by the DC chapter of the Entrepreneurs Organization. This is the Impactful Leadership Show. Well, welcome to the Impactful Leadership Show. I'm your host, Greg McDonough, CEO of Blackburn Capital Advisors. Today's guest is a self-proclaimed science nut going all the way back to his childhood. He's dedicated more than 15 years developing scientific approach to the, the, the design and management of sales processes. The founder of Ballistics, a sales and management and marketing consultancy company, the author of the definitive guide to sales process engineering, the machine, a radical approach to the design of the sales function. He has facilitated workshops and delivered keynotes to hundreds of organizations across the globe. And he's very well known for views that are not conforming and often controversial. Please welcome Justin Rothmarsh. Welcome, Justin. Hey, Greg. Good to be here. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, my show, this show is about leadership, and my favorite question to ask my guest is, Justin, tell me about some misconceptions in leadership. So leadership isn't our direct focus, but we bump up against it a lot, obviously, as part of the work that we do, re-engineering organizations, front of house. And, and I think I have a few bugbears that <laughs> around leadership. That the, so there's a, a few things that are common misconceptions that folks don't question, and I think they're all dangerous because if you take them seriously, they, they can cause folks to make just poor decisions. So the first one is that um, you do not, if you're a leader of a traditional organization, you do not want your staff to be entrepreneurial, and you should not make decisions based upon an assumption that you want your staff to be entrepreneurial because. The word entrepreneur means something very specific. What you want your staff to be are good staff. You you want them to come to work, do the job that they were employed to do. You want them to enjoy the environment. You want them to get some sense of fulfillment from the environment. But at the end of the day, you want them to go home and play in their tennis league or build their Amway business or whatever it is that they're doing in their after hours time. And and the, it turns out that most folks, the majority of folks are perfectly happy with the traditional job function. The idea that you can be paid a predictable wage to come and do a, uh, a predictable day's worth. And it's very disruptive to organizations to design organizations as if the employee was meant to be an image of the founder of the firm. Mm. They are not an image of the founder of the firm, and it's not healthy for them to be so. And and you, you end up with two problems. You, are, you end up designing environments for team members that are, that are less pleasurable for them to work within. An example of that would be, you know, adding bonuses and, and weird profit share schemes. You know, leaders almost without question, think it's a fantastic idea because it encourages entrepreneurship. If you talk to employees, these schemes of whatever type inevitably get treated as part of the wage. So mm -hmm. if if you listen to how employees talk to each other, uh, they gross up their wage to, to include their expectation of whatever their bonus or their profit share is going to be. They don't actually treat it separately and to the extent that it results in uh 
um, a, new, a, a set of behaviors that wouldn't have existed otherwise, those behaviors more often than not are more positive in my experience than they are uh, negative. The other, positive, the other possible negative consequence is that if you do deliberately go out and recruit, recruit and encourage entrepreneurial folks, there's a very real danger that you turn your business into an incubator for future competitors. And if you want mm -hmm. to see an example of this, look at a typical print shop, you know, a, a printing business. You know, it, it, if, if somebody set out to design a business such that it incubated future competitors and became less competitive over time, a traditional print shop would be a perfect example of that. Um, that's the first one. Awesome. Let's dig into that a little bit further. Um, and you know, you're, you're spot on, right? It's when we have employees, us as entrepreneurs, we kind of expect them to be built and act and behave like we want to act. Like we want to have the big carrot. We want to go eat what we kill. We want to be able to do these things. And then when we impose that on our employee base, they're like, wait a second, to your point, they just want to go back to their tennis league on Friday afternoon and enjoy the weekend with their family. And so it does create this disruption within the organization. Um, how? And the, the danger is if you build your organization such that it's dependent upon the discretionary effort that you're expecting from your people, should these harebrained entrepreneurship, internal entrepreneur or intrapreneurship, as it's sometimes called, schemes pay off, then you end up with a with a, with an organization that's not particularly resilient. The, the trick is to do the opposite. The trick is to design your organization so that it can prefer, perform extraordinarily if it's populated entirely with folks who come to work and do a decent day's work and go home again. Mm, well said. Well said. Interesting. All right. I got some other follow-up questions, but let's jump into your second misconception and then I'll circle back. Well, the second one's kind of connected. It's this, it's this lazy idea that culture can be directly managed. Mm -hmm. um, everybody, including senior leaders, leaders, including people, folks who've built billion dollar businesses who really, in my opinion, should know better, talks about culture as if you can directly manage it. You, you hear folks say, oh, well, such and such an organization has a culture problem. We need to deploy some executive to go in there and, and fix it. And, and I think that if you asked, one of these executives to define culture, they wouldn't have to spend two, more than a minute or two thinking about it to realize that culture is an emergent consequence of a, a particular organization design. It's not something that's spread like butter on top mm. of an organization. It's something that emerges from, from, the, from the fabric of the organization as a consequence of the design of, of the organization. So you don't actually work on culture directly. And in my experience, Initiatives that are designed to tamper with culture directly uh, uh, end up doing more harm than good. I've observed over the years that there's an, a, a, a linear relationship between how often executives use the word culture and how caustic their organization's cultures actually are. The healthy, in, in the healthiest organizations, no one uses the word Executives don't use the word culture, and employees definitely don't use the word culture on a on a regular basis. So my, my view is that obviously organizations can and do have cultural problems, but those cultural problems are a manifestation of organization design problems. And you don't fix those problems with a culture expert. You fix mm -hmm. those problems by fixing the design of the organization. 
And this relates back to the first point. You know, don't design your organizations based upon the assumption they're full of entrepreneurial people. Design your organization around the people people who you actually employ. And if you employ more than 20 or 30 folks, there's this thing called the regression to the mean, which which states basically that if you employ lots of people, on, av- on average, your staff are average, uh, are average humans. Uh, and 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 the organization needs to be d- designed around that. Um, um, and I think that whenever you identify cultural problems, you should recognize those problems as symptoms of poor organizational design and focus on the design of the organization. And, and you know, then part of that is recognizing, well, what's an organization meant to do? It's meant to, if it's small, it's meant to grow. And uh, it, it's meant to generate a profit. If not today, at some point in the short-term future, it's, it's, it's meant to spin off free cash flow. And I think that if you can build an organization such that it's either growing rapidly or spinning off lots of free cash flow, doing what the organization was meant to do, then you end up with a healthy organization and a healthy culture, except in extraordinary circumstances. Certainly, certainly. So taking it one step deeper, Justin, are there particular organizational organiza- designs of organizations that you come across that produce a more toxic culture than others? Yes, I think so. Uh, a, a common mistake with organizational design is failing to recognize that as an organization grows, it goes through steps, it, it goes through step changes mm-hmm. in how it needs to be designed. Um, uh, a common problem we see with smaller businesses is, and is, uh, like, you know, line management not taken seriously. And, and the reason it's not taken seriously is not just because it's forgotten. It's because owners have this noble idea that, that, that their folks, because they're special, of course, don't need management. Um, and, uh, it, and, and that leads to a very, very, unproductive and and even to- toxic in- environment because the organization as it grows becomes dysfunctional and you end up with uh, you end up with groups forming inside the organization evolving inside the organization that inevitably come to feud with one another mm-hmm. um so there's kind of like a uh uh a size above which uh, a formal structure needs to be imposed upon the organization and 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 individual contributors need uh, what used to be called supervisors, line managers. And the reason they need supervisors is not to supervise their work. it's it's to enable them to focus on their work. So that would, in my opinion, that would be the most common mistake—a failure to recognize a requirement for line management—and and and that stems from a failure to recognize what line management is. The role of the line manager should be to enable an individual contributor to to focus on their work undistracted by all of the stuff that's going on around them. Like it's if you if you ahead. use a manufacturing example, if you're a welder, you want to come to work and weld all day. You don't have to shift stuff around so that you can get to your workstation. You don't have to want to go and unpack a lorry when a delivery uh, comes in. You want to come to work, do your welding, and go home at the end of the day. And that requires, in a in a reasonable size organization, 
a, a, a very structured work environment, which of course requires line management. Now, in a small organization, it can be fun to come to, to, to you know, in a more of a craft shop environment to come to work and help out unloading a truck and so on. But when an organization gets above a certain size, it ceases to be fun and, and it, it becomes highly unproductive. It introduces safety risk and eventually it leads to cultural problems. And this happens in white collar roles as well as with knowledge workers uh, to, for exactly the same reasons and perhaps to a greater extent than it does in blue collar roles like welding. Have you seen a particular size of that? You mentioned you're going from small small yeah. organization where everyone's hands-on, everyone's opening the unloading the lorry, et cetera, et cetera, to where it needs to be a little bit more structured. I, I suspect it varies by industry, but rule of thumb, is there a, a size that you see that that shift needs to start happening, like number of employees or revenue? Yeah, so uh, in services businesses, like professional services businesses, the, the size would be a lot smaller than in, say, manufacturing or distribution businesses where the revenues are higher, but the margins are a lot lower. So in uh, traditional businesses, I would say $10 million. Is mm-hmm. that is somewhere around $10 million is the point at which you need. The, our rule would be that every individual contributor should answer to a line manager. Uh, in, in professional services firms, less than that, $5 million. Three to five million. So there should not be a single individual contributor who doesn't answer to a line manager. Now, in a firm with three to five million dollars, that means you don't have middle managers. You can't afford them. You only have line managers and you have the senior executive. The mistake organizations make is they add managers whose role is not clearly specified. And if the person's role is not clearly specified, they end up becoming more of a middle manager than a line manager, in spite of the fact that the organization doesn't need middle management, it just needs line management. And if it doesn't have good line management, it's probably not going to grow to the point where it gets to the 20 or $30 million in revenue, at which point middle management, there is a genuine requirement for middle management. So the, so the first step out of that small business is a line manager and just repeating what you said right a line manager versus a middle manager yeah we should be building from the bottom up versus building our management structure from the bottom up versus from the top down yeah so there's a very specific problem that a line manager solves and i've i've alluded to it already uh if um if uh if you're in a very small business um you have, and you're an individual contributor, you have two requirements. You have to do your work and you need to contribute to the management of the interface almost uh, uh, between your role and and the folks around you. Mm -hmm. So you can't just stand there and wait for someone to pass you parts to machines. So I'm using uh, manufacturing as as a metaphor. The same thing applies to a greater extent in knowledge work. And the reason I say to a greater extent is because the work is invisible. So there's a much more opportunity for problems than there is in a physical environment. In a physical environment, it's more likely that two people will agree on the same reality. It's less likely in a knowledge work environment because the work is ephemeral. Mm-hmm. So um, the, the key problem is that uh, if, if you're an individual contributor, y- you can't just focus on your particular pile of work 
Um, and a supervisor solves that problem because a supervisor takes responsibility for managing the integrity of the process as a whole, mm. managing the flow of work from one workstation to the other, from one individual contributor to the other. And that means the individual contributors can just focus on performing the tasks that appear on their to-do list or machining the parts that appear in the Kanban bin upstream from them or whatever the environment is. And that's a huge, huge benefit to individual contributors. Certainly. And, and, and m smart managers should be clamoring to get their organization to the size where they can add line management. Our advice to small organizations is, is, is if you have a number of small teams, you should be uh, co-locating those teams and grouping them under a small number of line managers. So, for example, if uh, if you're a small organization and we're let's say we're talking about the front of house and in the front of house you have customer service, you have maybe an onboarding team, uh, uh, maybe you have design, uh, some design engineers, maybe you have pre-production, maybe you have purchasing folks. I would I would uh, recognize that you've got a whole bunch of folks there who are who are office based folks. And I would group them together and I would have one person supervise all of them, have yeah. them all sit together, have one person supervise all of them, even though technically th they belong to different groups. And some of them might be on the sales side of the organization. Some of them might be on the operation side of the organization. I would actually design the organization around the availability of line management. And, and the line manager's role is it sounds like totally responsible for the processes that the individual contributors are following to get their work done. Yeah, their, their primary responsibility is freeing the individual contributors to just focus on processing work. They're also responsible for the flow of work. So for example, um, what we don't wanna do is keep everyone busy. We wanna mm -hmm. choke the release of work in order to maximize flow. So the line manager should also be responsible for choking the release of work. So we, we don't want all of our team busy all of the time. We want to make sure that, so, we, so rather than trying to maximize efficiency, we should be trying to maximize throughput. So the line manager needs to understand what throughput is in each of those cases where purchasing is concerned. We don't want our purchasing people purchasing all day long. We just want to make sure that periodically our purchasing folks sprint to place the purchases and to do the follow-up on suppliers as necessary to ensure that raw material inputs arrive on time to release a full kit into production. Mm. Uh, so they will sprint and stop, sprint and stop, uh, which is very similar to how you would manage, uh, you know, operators in a distribution environment. Um, same thing applies to customer service. You want customer service to be highly responsive, like a fire brigade. Uh, you, you want them to sit idle until the phone rings or until an email is received, and then you want to jump on it. And it, you want them to jump on it and process it as rap rapidly as possible, hand it off, and then sit there. So, the the line manager is responsible for uh, uh, maximizing throughput and freeing the individual contributors to do their work. The, aside from that, obviously they're responsible for the qual quality of work, so they should be overseeing the quality to make sure it's fit for purpose. But generally speaking, that that that's just a, that doesn't require direct intervention. To the extent that there's a problem, that they'll, they'll roll up their sleeves and fix those problems. For the most part. The, the line manager, if, if the organization's healthy and folks are doing what they should be doing, which they generally will, if it's a 
healthy environment with reasonably well-trained people, then the su- supervisor, supervisors, line managers should just be focusing on those two things. Shifting gears a little bit, um, Justin, I'd love to understand or, or tell the audience more about your background, uh, how you got into this field, what your business is doing now. Like, take us through some of your journey. Um, I came from a financial services startup in Australia. I live in the U.S. now. Um, so some of you may have spotted the accent already. Uh, <laughs> I, but I was a minor shareholder in a financial services startup. And when it started to do really well in Australia, I, it started to rankle me the fact that I was a minor shareholder. So I quit to start my own business 27 years ago. And that, that was uh, what's called ballistics today. It was called something different back then. But when I left, I'd been the CEO of that uh, startup. Um, when I left, we had developed two things. We had developed, uh, first, a seminar program that generated large volumes of sales opportunities for the, for the organization. We put, in our biggest year, 45,000 people through public events mm-hmm. in Australia, mind you, which is a country the size of Greater LA. Um, so we had this big lead generation machine. Uh, but the other thing that we had that that we probably didn't recognize the value of at the time is in order to exploit the value in all of these leads that we were generating, we had recognized through trial and error a requirement to restructure sales. You know, having commissioned salespeople following up on these leads was resulting in salespeople doing enough work to earn the kind of incomes that they individually felt that they were worthy of and then stopping working. So we had this this huge volume of sales opportunities that was accumulating and a bunch of salespeople who are happy earning eighty, ninety thousand dollars a year, which back then was a reasonable amount of money. And and uh, and working at probably sixty percent of their possible rate of work. Um so that caused us to scrap the whole traditional sales model and to and to to turn sales into more of an assembly line we you know we put salespeople in offices uh like it's deliberate deliberately structured to look like the doctor's offices uh we had queues of people waiting I- in reception to talk to the salesperson we have a receptionist out front with a coffee machine making the folks who are waiting coffee and chatting to them so they didn't become too uncomfortable being forced to sit and wait there and then we had the salesperson in, in his or her office at the at the back of the room doing presentation after presentation, you know, 10 to 12 sales presentations a day. And, you know, a percentage of folks would walk out of there holding a big box, uh, which signified that they had um, they had made a purchase. So we built this sales environment 30 years ago. Uh, and when I started Ballistics, initially, everybody thought I thought and our clients thought that the real value in what we did was packing rooms full of people, generating sales opportunities at scale. So we started the business doing that. And over time, we recognized that the real problem, the really valuable problem that we knew how to solve was the sales process design problem. Mm. Now, of course, for most of our clients, we couldn't put salespeople in offices that were designed to look like doctor's offices and have have uh, patients queue up, uh, I mean, prospects queue up in the foyer to talk to them. That that wasn't practical. Um, so it took us a while to figure out how to generalize that insight so that it made sense to other businesses. But that's what we do today. We re, 
engineer uh, organization sales functions and to, to make them look like production lines. We take away salespeople's autonomy. We get rid of commissions. Uh, we pay salespeople really well. Or our clients pay salespeople really well. But we put them in an environment where they do nothing but sales conversation. Selling conversation after selling conversation after selling conversation all day long. So the result is a massive increase in the volume of sales activity that happens uh, you know, uh, in an organization without a commensurate increase in operating expense. And the key to doing that is, is moving all of the non-sales activities that mm. occupy most salespeople's almost entire days uh, from salespeople to op operations. So the little-known secret is that even though folks hire us to go and re-engineer their sales functions, we we would devote 90% of our efforts to working in operations. We mm -hmm. we actually manifest the improvements that we do by redesigning clients' customer service teams, onboarding teams, design engineering teams, uh, uh, and uh, marketing teams. The, the sales piece is relatively easy. All we do is take away everything from salespeople so there's nothing left for them to do other than have selling conversations. And in that process, Justin, are you starting with the sales team to understand what non-sales activities they're doing, and then that leads you? No, we into... know already. Okay. You know how I know already? No, please tell me. That's the same in every organization. Okay. I mean, you you name an organization where salespeople aren't involved in managing accounts and and consequently performing customer service work. Yeah, it, it it's pretty standard across all the companies yeah. that are coming to mind. Now, I could be more specific. If if you show me an organization where salespeople get paid either in part or in full commission, where they do a mixture of inside work and outside work, they have the they have this set of problems mm. because it's impossible not to. It's impossible for salespeople. It's impossible for salespeople to simultaneously. Uh, well, it's impossible for salespeople to to believe that they own own and manage accounts, and not for them to be in uh, and, and and not be involved in customer service. The big mistake that we make in management is that we think the management of accounts is something noble that salespeople should be responsible for. Management of accounts, in most cases, with the exception of very large enterprise accounts, which are a whole different story. But the management of accounts in most cases means the management of transactions. Yeah. And nobody wants to admit to this. If we said to uh, if we said to a typical sales manager, do you want salespeople managing accounts? They would say, yes, of course. If you said to them, do you want salespeople managing transactions? They would say, no, of course not. And then if you ask them to highlight the difference between the, the functional difference between those two things, they would stutter and stammer. Because they would recognize that in in with the exception of major enterprise accounts where you're doing large volume of large volumes of business, there is no practical distinction between managing the accounts and managing transactions. So, I, so people shouldn't be doing it. And I see the point that you're making around commission and thinking about sales teams that I've managed or that my wife's involved in, and et cetera, et cetera. And the fact that there's a commission almost enforces that 
salesperson to carry it all the way across the line. So they, to your point, they have to do all the functions in order to yeah. get the contracting. The, is the invoice paid? Is this, is that? And all those things are non-sales activities that are distracting the salesperson from actually doing their job. Yeah. So commissions cause two perfectly predictable effects. The first effect is, as you've highlighted, that it, it ropes salespeople into the management of transactions, whether they want to or not. And good salespeople, in their defense, don't want to, but they get raped, they get roped into issue management, um, at a minimum, whether they want to or not. Um, the second perfectly predictable, uh, 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 um, consequence of paying folks commission is, and I've touched on this before, is that you're, you're giving your salespeople permission to be idle and they will be. So you're making, you're making sales activity optional. You're saying to your salespeople, we want you to pursue business to the point at which you feel comfortable. You know, if you look in the mirror and you see a $300,000 a year person looking back, we want you to go out and actively hunt for business until you have secured for yourself a $300,000 a year income, and then you can slow down. And, and this comes back to the, to the point that we made at the beginning of the discussion, this idea that, that individual contributors are entrepreneurial. The mistake we make is we, we, we look at ourselves in the mirror and we, we, we see a greedy little bugger looking back and we think that our salespeople are the same, but, but, but they're not, except for the truly entrepreneurial ones who are going to leave the organization and become our competitors. So we shouldn't be adding them to the sales force in the first place. Uh, you know, I, I like to say to my audiences of entrepreneurs, you, you know, we look in the mirror and we see this noble, heroic, uh, individual looking back and we're inspired by our greatness but everyone else in the organization uh, looks at us and sees a psychopath <laughs> <laughs> we're the exception not the rule so so and even where salespeople are concerned we don't want to hire um, entrepreneurs or salespeople uh, so um, because those people are extremely disruptive to the rest of the organization mm. They fight with marketing, they fight with engineering, they fight with production, they make promises that, you, you know, we don't want that. Uh, what, what we want is a team of people who perform a fixed and predictable volume of sales activity, and we want that volume to be higher than the volume of sales activities, that the, than the volume of, of activity that good performers would naturally perform if left to their own volition. You would okay. never, if you owned a bar, you would never hire bar attendants and tell them to work until they felt comfortable. <laughs> that would be idiotic. So we shouldn't do it where sales is concerned. That's right. We should hire salespeople and tell them that we need them to have 10 to 15 selling conversations a day, day after day. And it should be clear to them when they sign on that that's what they're signing on for. Doesn't matter whether they feel comfortable or not, the job involves having 15 selling conversations a day. Yeah, it's interesting the the metaphor around the bar tender, and if that was their motivation, how many taverns would go empty once they get their tip jar full and they could make the rent payment? Yeah, when I was a when I was a teenager, I I I lived in Brisbane, Australia, and there was a 
a nightclub, uh, what was it called? Uh, oh, tracks, tracks. It had a train out the front. And uh, the, the, in, in Brisbane at the time, there were two sets of nightclubs. There were the legal ones that closed at, at three o'clock, and then there were the illegal ones in the valley, uh, kind of like West Hollywood here, that stayed open until, you know, five in the morning. And uh, folks would come out fairly late. We were a little bit European in Australia like that. They'd come out at eight or nine at night. And it was a sprint behind the bar to serve as many drinks as we possibly could. One thing that folks don't understand about bars, but also about businesses in general, is that the first, faster you sell stuff, the more stuff people buy. Mm. So the faster we served drinks, the more people drank. It wasn't like there was a fixed quantity of alcohol to be served over the course of the night. It was dynamic. The faster we poured drinks, the more people drank. So um, as a consequence, we had to come to work and work like dogs. And I remember going to the to the restroom regularly on a Friday or Saturday night and grabbing an, uh, you know, like an iced uh, coffee or an iced chocolate from the from the fridge and sitting on the toilet in the restroom, drinking an iced coffee so, so weak from running all night that I was, you know, I needed to kind of recuperate before I went back on the floor. Like we ran, we worked like dogs. Imagine if the owners of tracks had said, look, we're going to hire salespeople. We're going to pay them commission and we're going to allow them to work until they feel comfortable, at which point they can slack <laughs> off. Imagine what that would have cost the organization. It would be insane. An executive who made a decision like that would deserve to be fired. Absolutely. And yet we do it to salespeople. It's as if growing the organization isn't important. It's almost a it's almost a breach of fiduciary responsibility. That's eye opening for sure. Um, Justin, talk to us a little bit about your typical client engagement, your keynotes. You know, talk to us about how folks can get engaged with you. Um, well, key, keynotes is something that I don't chase, but I end up doing a fair bit of it. I speak sometimes for EO groups, oftentimes for Vistage and also for YPO on, on occasion. I just got back from speaking at a few YPO groups in South America. Um, so it's not a core part of the business, but industry associations too, but it we end up falling falling over these opportunities, which is, is fun. Our core business is building sales functions for organizations. We tend to focus on industrial uh, so manufacturers and distributors, simply because it's easier for us, easiest for us to implement our ideas in those organizations. They tend to be larger, more mature. Uh, by more mature, I mean the management teams are more mature. They have a more realistic understanding of how to build large enterprises than than other businesses. We do some work with in services and with tech companies. Uh, generally the larger ones, if you've got, if you've got to sort of 10 million plus in revenues and you're starting to recognize that there are problems, you know, fundamental problems with organizational design, we're a little bit leery about working with small tech companies or small services firms, uh, much harder to work with. You don't have that same level of maturity in management that, you know, they haven't, you've got a, a bunch of folks who've never built a big organization who don't understand you don't have like a natural affinity for organizational design. Mm. Um, but over the, I mean, over the years we've worked with, uh, with a fairly diverse set of organizations and it's, you know, building new front, of, we re-engineer the front of house for organizations. So the parts of the organization that have, have contact with customers or potential customers. Got it. That's helpful. Very helpful. 
And lastly, Dustin, how could an audience member get in touch with you? Oh, I'm easy to find. Uh, uh, it's Justin Rothmarsh. So if you type that into onto the web, the first three or four pages of responses will, you know, probably will lead to my website or my Twitter feed or my LinkedIn page. Um, uh, the I guess my favorite. LinkedIn's always easy, I, I guess. Um, um, yeah, Great. Me, hit me up on LinkedIn. I do read my messages on LinkedIn. Awesome. Yeah, and we'll include those links and uh, ways to find you in our show notes. Um, Justin, it's been great having you on and, the show. And listen, guys should go. Guys should buy the machine. Go to if 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 this if any of this message resonates, go and buy the machine. It's on Amazon. It's it's i know 15 bucks or something it it's actually a, even if you don't like business books which i don't i hate business books <laughs> even if you don't i i i wrote this book specifically for intelligent folks who hate reading business books uh um it reads more like a book on science than a book on business so if you hate business books go and go and read the machine yeah i i have it on my shelf i needed to blow the dust off since the last time i saw you but i uh, i definitely will re read through it um because it the, the things that you've shared with us today are super insightful and it, it's really kind of got my brain moving in a different direction um, as it pertains to my business and the EO businesses that I support. Uh, so Justin, thank you again for your insights and your input today. It's great having you on the show. You're welcome. Thank you, Greg. And that's a wrap, my friends. Thank you for spending your time with me. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at impactfulleadershipshow.com one last food for thought. Walk on with hope in your heart and you'll never walk alone.